Mark is exactly right when he did the scripture reading, noting that it ends on a very transitional point. Um, We'll try to get to that verse today and then back up a little bit next week and pick up and start reading again. So there's intentionally kind of a built-in overlap to emphasize that high point that Paul is trying to get us to as we continue to work through the book of Ephesians. Last week, we talked about knowledge and knowing. And though in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we really know a love that surpasses it. And Paul's the only one who even uses this idea of surpassing. And it's not knowledge, love. (laughs) Okay, it's knowledge and love like way beyond. That we're all experiencing a love that absolutely explodes past our ability to comprehend. So we got to be careful that we don't rely too much on knowledge. It can be a trap. It's obviously the trap for Adam and Eve from day one. And Paul talks about knowing, experiencing, having intimacy with this God through Jesus in a way that surpasses knowledge, the same way Paul talks about the new covenant so far surpasses the old covenant that in comparison the old covenant has no glory it does have glory it was given by god it's a revelation it's inspired but what we have in christ is so far beyond it and the same thing is true of this love we're experiencing versus our ability to figure it out that doesn't mean knowledge isn't important it means we got to relax and just start loving people and trust god with that And a lot of what I talked about last week is our knowledge is our way of armoring ourselves. Um, Which is, that's just your intellect, your cognitive ability, doing what it's supposed to do, keep you safe. But we have trust issues. We don't really rest in God. And so, um, yeah, we get, we feel a little threatened, a little off put, a little out out of balance, and we start hyperanalyzing. That's not, when taken too far, that gets in the way of love. We have to trust. And we don't have to intellectually know or intellectually agree to trust. There's lots of things God does that we do not yet agree with. (laughs) We will when we're really seeing everything. But if you wait until you agree with it to be at peace with it, you're just not going to be at peace. There's certain things in life you have to wait until we actually know fully. So we have to understand that and really get back to experiencing the love of God if we're going to walk worthy of the calling we have received. And that's our goal as we transition to Ephesians 4. And we'll talk about this part of it more as we go through this section of the book. But Ephesians is all about sitting, walking, standing. Remember, that came up before when we did an introduction. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's a place of rest, a place of grace. Nothing you do can lift you higher. Nothing you do can pull you below that. If you know Christ, you're seated with him. From that place of rest, which by the way, we can't know. We have to trust him with that. We don't have knowledge of that. We haven't seen it yet. He'll show us that in the coming age. But from that place of rest, we can walk. And that's the section we're transitioning into And though he mentions, don't walk in the ways of this world, walk in good works in chapter two, it's really chapter four, verse one. 
after he transitions into this knowing love that surpasses knowledge, that he really emphasizes our need to walk. And there's five walkings in these chapters until you get to chapter six where you stand and it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against all these people who you think are taking your country in the wrong direction, whatever you think that is. It's not the humans. If we start standing against humans, we're missing our calling. The struggle is against principalities and powers. And Christ is not just a little above them, he's far above them. So that's how we get above them, is operating the same way Christ operated. And that's how we start to walk worthy. Worthy. Andy Stanley says this, quote from him, attention establishes direction which determines destination. We're going to come back to that multiple times. You'll see that picture throughout the slideshow today. Attention establishes direction which determines destination. Um, you guys know I read books like Meditations on Violence and all that kind of stuff. It's a great thing for a pastor to spell. <laughs> hey, I've got to defend myself from you guys. <laughs> no. Um, in a violent encounter, one of the best ways to bring your opponents down is just what I call send pain to the brain. Because even if it's not a major injury, if I just come through, wham, tag him here, for a split second, his attention goes. And where his attention is, he's then not paying attention to other things. And that doesn't mean the pain isn't real. Doesn't mean the pain isn't traumatic. Doesn't mean the pain isn't something eventually you have to work through. But you got to keep your mind on winning the fight. And if you get too focused on the pain, you're not focused in the right place, right? And where your attention goes, it will establish your direction. And your direction will establish your destination. That's why we have to get really good at working through things and letting the past go. It's essential to becoming part of the fullness of Christ. That's huge, wherever we're coming from. So keep an eye on that picture throughout the message today. All right? So in being worthy, trying to walk worthy, we're going to try to encourage, celebrate, build, and then the big point, mature. And then we'll back up and look at that maturing point again next week. Um, but encourage. You know, want to encourage one another to walk worthy. And that's the first six verses, really. First one is where, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, Paul was under arrest when he wrote this, we know that, urge you, I encourage you, I exhort you, same root idea that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the counselor, the encourager, give you the emotional courage, the fortitude to keep staying in this fight. So what the Holy Spirit does for us, and Paul's coming alongside and he's doing that same thing. Urge you what? To walk in a manner worthy. And worthy, that picture he's painting, I said at the beginning of the service, is where we get the idea axiomatic. That's this fancy term used more in philosophies. Um, it shows up in our history some. We talk about the allied versus the axis powers in World War II says something about the Axis powers that they painted themselves as the Axis, <laughs> upon which everything spun. They were foundational, right? That's in their mind. <laughs> the Axis, axiomatic, all right? 
What is the axis on which your day-to-day -day turnings spin? That's what tells you what you think is ultimately worthy. And Paul's saying it ought to be this. Given that you have known a love that surpasses knowledge, given everything God has done for you in Christ, what you should keep coming back to, what your world should spin on, is I want to walk in a way that's increasingly consistent with that truth. Well, if you want to do that, three C's. First one, control yourself. <laughs> I want to walk in a way that's worthy, so I'm going to rip up this terrible world by its roots and burn it down and build a better one. Yeah, good luck with that. Is that how Jesus did it? He's the one guy who can actually be trusted with doing it. I'll wait for him. His timing. Until then... I need to start with controlling myself. You, but the world's so terrible. Look, you're here for 70 or 80 years. How long has God been engaged with it? You know, when it's really that bad that it just can't go on, he'll deal with it. Do you trust him with that? Or do you got to figure it out for yourself? Now, you need to control yourself. And Paul gives some ways how you do that right away. Humility gentleness, patience. <laughs> now, think about that link. So when your gentleness and your patience fades, you're being arrogant. And we don't kind of like to admit that one. He links them. Humility, gentleness, patience. When I'm impatient, I'm losing humility. When I'm too harsh, I'm losing humility. But they're wrong! Oh, and you're right? Humility. 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 Gentleness. Patience. Control yourself. Once you get a little better at that, once I get a little better at that, we're actually in a position to genuinely care for others. Now, all of us, in our best moments, we're made in God's image, can be touched to have a desire to help. And as you interact with people, putting yourself in a place where you, where you ask them to help you. Jesus did it with a Samaritan woman. Can I have a drink? Now, that just got past all her defenses. She was wary. What in the world is this? This Jewish guy asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. They won't even use a dish to a Samaritan. He said, how? Um, she was willing to do it for him, but he would have had to give her the dish. <laughs> she, he didn't have one. All that comes up. But he, see, Jesus disarms all of that by saying, I need your help. And that appeals to the best thing within us. But all, and all of us have that within us unless we've just become so brutally hardened. Here's the problem. There are all kinds of people who want to help who eventually like, stop helping. <laughs> because in their way of trying to help, they're not being humble. They're not being gentle. They're not being patient. They're not controlling themselves. And so whatever good motive might be there, they're not really skilled <laughs> at caring for other people.
And you care for other people by bearing with one another. And, that, and that's a means of how you do this. You just, you, you just take people the way they are and you bear with them. And yes, you speak into their life and you challenge them and things like that, but that's after the humility. <laughs> after the gentleness, after the patience, when they start to say, you know, I actually think this person's for me. At least you give them an opportunity to have a better chance of believing that. We all struggle with those kinds of things. But when you bear with one another and you are eager to keep, the idea there is guard, protect, value, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This does not mean intellectual agreement. Paul's writing it, Paul and Barnabas had a strong disagreement. But Paul speaks highly of Barnabas after that. He still trusted Barnabas, he still bragged about Barnabas. He was still shocked when Barnabas got swept away by Peter because he knew how strong Barnabas was. And Barnabas could stand up and disagree. But he speaks highly of Barnabas even after their fallout. And God ultimately worked it all out. Whoever was right, whoever was wrong, in whatever ways they were right, in whatever ways they were wrong in that whole disagreement, you see this deeper level of we don't have to see things the same way. To have a unity of spirit and a bond of peace. This is the sin of Protestantism. Which is our historical lineage. and the one we need to own, rather than just beating up all the other groups. Are we bearing with one another and eager to keep the unity? But this month has been incredible, and Friday night, Mark, you alluded to it. Wow. You know, for a moment, you get past it. And you see the beauty of that Revelation 7 picture, every kindred, tribe, nation, tongue, language, right? So that's how we care for each other. And to control yourself and to actually care for other people in a way that is humble, patient, gentle, forbearing, eager to keep unity, for you to do all of that, you gotta conquer this self-other competition. It's one body. That's the big theme. One body, one spirit. You were called to one hope that belongs to God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. One, one, one. We're a body. So the body is a great, it's an inspired analogy, metaphor, picture of the church. It's pointing to a higher reality that we don't see yet, but we are one body. The body's an amazing thing to study. The more you study it, the more you're like, oh, well, of course it's inspired. So imagine there's something about you stub your toe, so that's painful, right? Um, or you walk into a room and there's pollen. Right? Some people are allergic to pollen, right? I mean, nobody, if you breathe in a ton of pollen, you're going to sneeze. <laughs> but some people get a little bit of pollen, and what happens? Okay. So that's an autoimmune thing, where you have this part of your body that's supposed to protect you. 
knowledge. It's supposed to protect you from threats. But what's actually going on is your own immune system is overreacting and you're attacking your own body. Is this what we do? This is absolutely what we do. We start attacking our own body. We are aware that there's threats, <laughs> and there are. Thank God we have an immune system. <laughs> okay? And that's actually part of the role of that apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic pastor, teachers, is okay, let's keep people building on this one faith. And that's actually the role of the elders here at Grace Bible Church is their direct spiritual affairs church. Not, you have a role too, I'm not saying you don't. But ultimately, we are more accountable. We voluntarily stepped into that office. We're going to give a more thorough answer when we stand before Christ. That doesn't mean you're not going to give one. <laughs> but we're more, we're more accountable. But we can overcorrect. And then you start destroying your own body. Rheumatoid arthritis. Start destroying your own joints. Over-inflammation. Overreaction. Overcorrecting. One Lord. One faith. One body. One baptism. We have to be careful. We have to conquer this kind of competitive overreaction. When you do that, then you can celebrate. And what you can celebrate is grace ascending and descending. It's beautiful how Paul paints this picture, quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Okay. That's Christ. He's the one giving grace. Mention that in verse 7. So, if we're honest, what we like is ascending grace. Okay. We want to be lifted higher. We want God to prosper us. <laughs> we want God to raise us up. But descending grace comes first. And if there wasn't the descent, there's no ascent. And that is why we are saved by grace and not by works. We don't like get enlightened and apprehend God and then through our apprehension of him we're saved. He comes down and saves us. <laughs> he descends. He empties himself and then we start to get little fragmentary seeing in a glass darkly knowledge and when we get there then we'll know fully. So we like ascending grace, but which one's more gracious? Descending. Think about how we live our lives and how determined we are to ascend in all these external measurable ways. And that's fine as far as it goes. But what are you doing to your heart? Are you cultivating a descending heart? Because that's the heart of Jesus. Remember, he can never actually get higher than where he started. <laughs> he started, there's, like, there's no ascent for him. <laughs> 
from where he started. He just gets back to that. And he's fine with that. Giving is better than receiving. It's your ability to descend, to step away from what you're comfortable with, what you think is your glory, and enter into something else that feels like a loss to you for the sake of God's kingdom. That's showing a mentality that Paul's trying to transition people to. He descended first, the lower regions which are the earth. And now he's far above all the heavenlies, including the principalities and powers who are in that realm. So we want to celebrate, and we can celebrate ascending grace. When God blesses and prospers in ways that are observable, that's wonderful. But it's because he descended first. So how about if we imitate that more? That really shows grace. And you want to celebrate both, but especially the, the descending grace so that you can build people well. Because we're not really trying to build a property or a building or even a budget. We're trying to build people. It can't, in the end, be this program-based design. It has to be people-based. And who is your neighbor? Whoever you meet. Just try to build them up. We build people, and you try to do it well so that they can walk worthy and so that they can be empowered to do the work of the ministry. You're trying to be a people builder. And Paul mentions four categories. Some people say five. And I don't want to get super technical with it, but it's four. <laughs> in this passage. All right. Um, he's linking the pastoral teaching. It doesn't mean that teaching separate from pastoral care is not a gift. He's not mentioning all the gifts here. There's lots of gifts. He's emphasizing gifts that are specifically powerful in equipping people to do the work. Okay. Um, he's not mentioning every gift. So as you look at these four, you get apostle, prophet, evangelist, and shepherding teacher, pastoral teacher. So, as you build people, there's your four functions. And Paul's already mentioned in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, this foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then building on that. But that doesn't mean, but we can't go too far with that. In our circles, we kind of want to downplay any apostolic or prophetic function. Because, and we're, you know, it's true, there's not the apostles and the New Testament prophets around that God's giving direct authoritative revelation to for all people today. I'm not saying God can't give someone a prophecy or something like that, but that, that's, there's definitely that uniqueness of that office in the strictest sense of the term. Start with the apostles, right? The apostles in the New Testament. So do you know Jesus is called an apostle in Hebrews, right? So we don't usually think of him as one, but apostle just means sent one. So of course, Jesus, he's in blue. Jesus is always, Jesus is different, right? Okay, but then the red ones are all the other ones that you can't really argue that they were apostles, all right, Matthias was chosen by the other 12, and Paul, Jesus, directly chose him. But then look at this other side. 
Barnabas, Andronicus, Junius, who might be Junia, a woman, Epaphroditus, Silas, Timothy, unnamed people in 2 Corinthians 8, 23, so that could have been several. James, James, the brother of Jesus, is not directly called an apostle, but if you look at how he functioned. Jude, the brother of Jesus, is not directly called an apostle. Titus is not directly called an apostle, but Timothy was, and it seems like Titus and Timothy had similar, so I left question marks by those last three because they're not directly called apostles. But there is this apostolic function. And they're not literally apostles, and we need to make sure that you make that clear. The foundational generation is the apostles and prophets. But what is a sent one doing? They're pioneers. They're laying foundations, not the foundation, that's the apostles and the prophets. They're the missionary who just goes and shows up and there's no church. And he, you know, he lays a foundation. And we need that kind of apostolic leadership and we need to be equipping people for that. So it's like, well, I really feel passionate about Marie, homeless ministry, foundational work, Right? So when people come with me like, like that and we don't have a way to meet the need right now, most of the time I'm like, that's awesome. How can I help? How can I help you do it? What can you do? Go do that. Be pioneering. <laughs> so you get this, uh, these people, and yes, the apostles are unique. Then you get that prophetic ministry. The prophetic people are the ones who have to be really, really careful because if they don't stay in a really gracious, humble, patient place, then they get very critical. But they're getting critical because they actually see the vision. They have a clear sense of how beautiful this vision is and we're not living up to it. So they're like your quality control people. <laughs> and even you know, in the Old Testament, the prophets were actually godly and prophetic and trying to stay humble and patient and gentle for the most part and forbearing. And, um, you know, and you get the stories in the Old Testament, they're great. Well, you know, is there a prophet of the Lord? I don't want a prophet of the Lord. They never say anything good. <laughs> they're always saying something bad. Um, whereas the other prophets just kissed up to the kings. The prophets speak truth to power. Um, but the apostolic one is like, they're not, they'll blow everything up. They'll run ahead. Let me give you an example of a bad apostolic function. And it may work out because God's bigger than all this. But I'm very concerned when people never really stick it out in any church, decide the church is bad, and then just go plant one on their own. Is that how Paul got commissioned? That Jesus said, you're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles? He went and ministered in a local church. He served for years the leadership of the church recognized him and Barnabas and commissioned them. And Jesus directly chose Paul. He still went through that process. So you get pioneers and they're not patient and they're losing humility and they just go out and do it. And God's bigger than all this. You get prophets who they see the vision, they have that beauty, but they get negative and they get critical and they don't have good timing and they blow things up unnecessarily when they're not operating well. When they're operating well, they're your best friend because they're helping you stay focused. And all of us, when we go bad, can turn around and say they are the problem. 
It's like, well, you know, if everybody else is the problem, they're probably not the problem. <laughs> now you get to the ones that are more common today. You know, we don't really have a problem talking about evangelists and pastor teachers or shepherding teachers. But evangelists, think of the first three, apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic. They're all universal. You go and you do this. The shepherding teaching, what that requires is a relationship. Okay? That's coaching. And we've got to be careful because this is in sports. In sports, when you get to coaching, you can have the coach who has a system, and if you don't fit the system, they blow you up and send you down the road. Okay? And they just get people who build their system, they go and win Super Bowls. Okay, that's fine. Then there's another kind of coach, and sometimes they win Super Bowls too. This is more like a Joe Gibbs for the Redskins, who had a system, Air Coriel, came to the Redskins, that didn't work, he was 0-5, he totally changed it, based on the personnel he had. Went to four Super Bowls, won three with three different quarterbacks, very different, took the people he had, and he coached them up. He wasn't as systematic. That's pastoral coaching. See, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, they bring the people. The shepherding teaching is your human resource manager. And they're tied to that local church. And their job is to take the people that are there and coach them. And not think, wait, I know how to build God's church. It's like, God's building his church. So here's the people he's brought. So let's run with that. And let's equip them. And let's empower them. And we don't have to micromanage it. We have to coach people and then trust them to go win the game. And those are the four big gifts. See, that's different than just giving information. That's teaching, and that's incredibly important. But it's the teaching and then the coaching part of it that's equipping people and empowering people so that you can build them well so that we walk worthy. And that is kind of bringing us to our main point that I wanted to get to today. You build people well so they can walk worthy so that we mature. Don't settle for a merely evangelistic faith that tells you the same good news at that same basic level every Sunday and you walk out and you feel good. But then five years later, six years later, you're like, I haven't changed. That's the evangelist going awry. We need all of it working together so that we can mature in your soul. <laughs> you have to keep growing. It's formational. God is forming you. He's changing you. The human soul is like water. <laughs> it takes the path of least resistance. So it takes the form of whatever it's in. So there's a lot of things that have formed you, even from multiple generations. And some of them are good, some of them are bad. How do you change those formations? So that's God's work. He changes your, the structure of you so that your soul can flow in a different way. And as he talks about that, it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, when's that going to happen? 
Really, completely. Heaven. <laughs> to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to mature manhood. This idea of mature here. This is the ideal. This is the blueprint. The Greek word is teleos, where we get things like teleological argument, argument from design. This is what you are designed for. This is what God created you for. This is perfection. This is maturity. And descending is more mature than ascending. You focus on descending. God will take care of the ascending. Isn't that what Jesus did? It is a descent to leave your land, Abraham. It is a descent to leave your tribe, your identity. And there's like this ideal picture, teleos, maturity, perfection. And then there's a functional one. And Paul nails this in Philippians 3. He says, look, I have not already attained or been made perfect. That's how we, most translations translate it. So I haven't reached the ideal yet, but this one thing I do. And he's just finished talking about all of his successes, all of his privilege, all of his loss. He says, but it's all in the past. This one thing I do, forgetting, I'm not perfect, I haven't attained it yet, I'm not teleos, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, focusing on what is ahead, I press on for the, call, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, and all of us who are mature, all of us who are perfect, should take such a view of things. He just admitted, well, I'm not perfect <laughs> in this idealistic sense of what I will be when I get to heaven. So all I can do is keep aspiring to that, forget what's behind, get refocused, move forward, press on, because the ideal perfection is ahead of me. It's not behind me. And that's all I can do. So there's like a functional maturity. And Paul says, and all of us who are functionally mature should take this view. So think about that picture. Isn't that a beautiful doc? Attention establishes direction, which determines destination. There's lots of beautiful docks. So let's look at that dock. How far are you going if you face that way? It's beautiful. How far are you going? There's the water. We all, okay, so you can go sit on your dock. I have no idea if Andy Stanley meant this. This is what I mean by it. <laughs> all right. I wonder what beauties could be ahead of us if we all turned around and went forward. Look, there's only one dock. When you think about our ethnicity, our culture, our past, there's only one dock that God chose, and it's a dead end if you go backward. Maybe we all need to keep moving forward. Because 
the answer to our callings in front of all of us. And part of moving forward is remembering, Ephesians says this, remember, remember, remember. Your fear past is part of who you are. But remember that thing I said about in a fight? Attention goes to pain. I think God says a lot about forgiving, letting the pain go, so that we can move forward because pain gets your attention. Attention establishes direction and that determines your destination. But there was a guy who had something really, really painful. He didn't let that grab all of his attention. Despising its shame, he looked. Right? He lifted his eyes. And he said, people are worth it. There is only one ship of Zion. I think Nicole has told us about that a couple times recently. There is only one train to Jordan. People, get ready. There's a train a-coming. There ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who would hurt all mankind just to save his own, his identity, his tribe, his whatever. Have pity on them. Their chances are thinner. There's no hiding place from the king on his throne. It's one train, one ship. There's not separate compartments. <laughs> one train, one ship. One way to walk worthy of our calling. Remember from where you came, out of that sea of nothing. <laughs> Remember it, it's beautiful and some people's docks have been horrifically burned down, and that's terrible. And we need to own that and admit it and give people time to process that, three or four generations even. And I don't want to sound flippant, but can I just be brutally honest? All the docks are going to burn. All of them. We need to move forward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and this time. I thank you for one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body in all the beautiful ways that we've seen that truth in this past month. Help us to live worthy of that calling. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.